Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today, the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally, and importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome John Cobb to the podcast. John is an American theologian, philosopher and environmentalist and the author of more than 50 books. A key idea at the heart of his work is the idea of ecological interdependence, the idea that every part of an ecosystem is reliant on all the other parts. In 1971, he wrote one of the first books in environmental ethics, Is It Too Late?, a theology of ecology. He's co-founder of the Living Earth Movement, whose mission is to inspire global cooperation for the sake of all life on our planet, beginning with the United States and China. So thank you very much, John, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of of your work, uh, your background, and yeah, what you're focusing on at the moment, John? Well, I'm a, a theologian by profession, but my understanding of theology is very much opposed to the academic discipline kind of thinking. That is, I, am, I, I think of myself as a disciple of Jesus, and that makes me think that an awful lot of what the church has been and taught is uh, rather inappropriate. But uh, it, it does give me a pair of glasses through which I look at what happens. And for example, Jesus is, I think, the major source, if not the only source in human history, of an emphasis on loving your enemies. And uh, I'm, I think it's wonderful that a Hindu picked up on that before any Christian did. I mean, in any you know, massive, serious way. Obviously, in many individuals could not survive without loving those who do bad things to them. <laughs> Jesus thought that was the strategy for dealing with Rome. Yes, yes. And Mahatma Gandhi saw that was the strategy of dealing with the English. Yes. So uh, uh, that, to me, is being a disciple of Jesus. That's not the only thing, but I'm, I'm indicating the perspective from which I look at things. Jesus also taught you cannot love both God and money. And since we live in a world that is organized around the love of money, I find that a very relevant teaching, too. Yes, yes, yes. And you're a philosopher, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit as well. What inspires you, uh, what, how, how that informs how you, you think about climate and, um, 
and, and you've a new initiative, the Living Earth Movement, which I look forward to talking to you about. But maybe before we go into the details of, of some of those questions, can you give us an idea of what, what is it about this moment from an environmental and climate perspective that would you say that worries you the most? Well, I think that um, in one sense, what worries me the most is that no country in the world is giving priority to what is the most threatening to human beings, to the future of human life on the planet. And um, I have have had some rather surprising role in China. And I thought, not just because of that, but just because I think this could be made, the argument can be made equally, whether one knows anything about China or not. But um, the only hope I really see is for the US and China to work together on this issue. Yeah. And, uh, and right now we are busy making China our enemy. And that, that's a very unfortunate, frightening yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I uh, will come on to that. I mean, I, I, I did it in an earlier episode just focusing on geopolitics and it's a, uh, it seems to be a, a hugely important area and um, uh, difficult to get a grip on sometimes. And um, But before we move on, what what makes you optimistic you, when you look around? Is, are there seeds of optimism there for you, John? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that I'm not sure it makes me optimistic, but as things get worse, my role in the world enlarges. Yes. I have been talking about the risk for, well, since since 1969, and um, largely ignored. So I, I am aware of a vast increase in the recognition that we should be doing something different. That's hopeful. Yes, you, you wrote about climate change, you say it was 1969, early 70s, around then you were right. And one of your books was, Is It Too Late? A Theology of Ecology. So you're really quite a prophetic uh, diagnosis, um, insights into what has become just such a existential threat to, to, to our civilization and, and, and to the world, living world. Do you have a sense of how we got into this situation. There have been moments where certainly uh, leaders and political leaders and, 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 and leaders, uh, economic leaders, have, have been more aware and, and more conscious and more um, deliberate about the, the climate issue. Not, not that many times, but it's ebbed and flow. And as you say, it's at a pretty low ebb at the moment uh, and has been sidetracked. Uh, the, the, the energy has been sidetracked by uh, uh, this kind of global militarism. But looking back over the 50 years, do you get a, a sense of, you know, how we got into this current situation? Political leaders, you know, p p they, they come and go, but there's some commonalities. Well, the um, situation in 59 was the, the, that we were being 
I think was the, really the first time that the that there was a wide recognition that the way human beings were living was unsustainable. And certainly it came to me as a shock. And it came to millions of people as a shock. And the movement that developed simply for a sustainable society was the most effective movement that there has been at all. We, we, with, when I say we, I, I wasn't playing any leadership role. I don't mean to sound like that, but nevertheless, I was intensely concerned and active in talking and so forth. And uh, even if we didn't know much about the details, just the idea that we were consuming the Earth's resources faster than they could be replaced and reducing, therefore, the possibilities for the future was such a reversal of the deep sense of progress that modernity has instilled in us that it was uh, life transforming for many of us. 1959, what specifically are you referring to? Uh, I think that is the... Well, that was the year that I was awakened. Yes, yes. My story is so similar. To Rachel Carson. <laughs> well, no, Rachel Carson was earlier, but it still was one issue. It wasn't, wasn't that the whole society was ha- that we had the wrong notion of what progress was. Yes, yes, yes. That, that what we were calling progress was really heading toward disaster. Yes. That that was, uh, uh, I I think, around 69 was the first time that was being said. Yes, yes. In in a way that caught on. I don't mean no no individual said it, you know, but lots of people can say lots of things. But this was in the newspapers. It was in, in the culture. You couldn't avoid it. And we in the United States actually got some good legislation passed under Nixon, who was not, you know, a leader in this field. But what happened then, and I I think it's very important for us to learn this lesson, is that we were all encouraged by friends and foes alike, but I think more by foes who knew what they were doing, that not to talk in such generalized way, but to pick an issue and really work on that. And of course, as soon as we followed that advice, there was no longer a movement. Yes, yes. There, yes. there were hundreds of efforts. Yes. And I'm, I'm not putting down any of them. I'm just saying, politically, they were all of minor influence. It's a fragmentation. That's right. Yeah, yes. How was your book received at the time? Oh, it was... Uh, I mean, it, it was not an important book. You I mean, it was the first one in a certain sense, but it was not a book that caught the imagination of tens or hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. So it, it was okay, but it wasn't actually published until seven, January in 72, although I wrote it in 1970. Yeah. And by 72, 
already the movement was becoming fragmented. Yes, yes, yes. And um, you, you just briefly before we move on, um, you, you you mentioned this question of a, a, a society built around money or mammon. Um, to what extent do you see the the way capitalism has developed and and, and uh, I suppose it's a kind of hyper globalized financialized capitalism that over this period which you're talking about um we've seen a very extreme we've seen the, the rise of these neoliberal ideas the the retreat of the state and this uh, financialization of, of of many many areas in, of life is that something that you you point to is that something that you think is is, is important to understand uh, yes I, I i talk about the shift from nationalism to economism I regard these as theological positions. That is, anything that people organize their lives around, that they really give themselves to. To me, that that's what theology is all about. And I think both are, from a Christian point of view, idolatrous, and we don't approve of idolatry. But uh, it's... It, Nationalism had more redeeming features than economism does. So it's very depressing, you have to say. I mean, right now, our educational system justifies itself. Just, I mean, it encourages students to come and participate in college because they will get better jobs. And that's almost the only reason. See, that's the worship of mammon is just all over the place. And it is, if it is not challenged, it is uh, inevitably self-destructive. And many people recognize that now. Well, I, I was sufficiently interested that I wrote a book together with an economist, Herman Daly, yes. who has been excommunicated from the economics, economic field, yes, but nevertheless has played an important role. I spoke to Herman, yeah. Okay, you know him, all right. Well, we wrote a book together, and I have written other things in the field of economics. That doesn't mean I'm an economist, but I can look at the theory, and economic theory is based on extreme individualism. And it's based on the assumption that individuals fundamentally compete. And this this is, of course, there's plenty of truth. We are individuals. We do compete. You can explain a lot of things. But in fact, none of us are purely pure individuals. We are all constituted by the society. If we do not have a healthy community, we will not become real persons. Yeah, yeah. So, so our idea was that we should build up our economy on the notion of persons in community. And yes. That, that has a, an opposite set of implications. Yes, yes. And this question of competition, I think, is, is we will be coming to that uh, in, in more detail because one of the uh, important 
vitally important relationships that you've been thinking about and drawing attention to in various ways is the relationship between America and China. Yes, yes. And how important that relationship is. And it's hard to escape the sense that there's a very strong competitive economic dynamic in play. And uh, certainly, and I'd be interested to get your impressions here in terms of how America, how America is dealing with China, how it's framing the relationship with China and the, uh, some of the implications there. And particularly when it comes to this question of when it comes to geopolitics, Politics is challenging enough to, to you know, we're here in Britain with a Tory majority government that's destroying, you know, uh, willy-nilly, you know, long-standing social institutions and so forth. They've got a majority. So even, you know, having a change in the ballot box is one thing. But this the geopolitics operates at a level, you know, above that to the extent that, you know, there's nothing we can do to, you know, or, or I'd be interested to get your impression here of what we can do to change some of the underlying geopolitics. But maybe just to start with, what is it that that got your attention about America and China? It's it's and, and, and why you think this is such an important question? Well, uh, my personal biography has took took a very surprising turn for a Protestant theologian. That is, I I became a popular figure in China. And I have been there many times. And the the philosophy that I follow is called process philosophy. And 30 universities in China develop centers for process thought. Zero universities in the United States have given any attention. So I naturally am interested in China because I have been so well received in China. <laughs> so that's a part of the part of the answer. But uh, China also has taken the environmental issue more seriously than any other major country that I know. Uh, both the Communist Party and the parliament, which is the highest elective organization, have adopted ecological civilization, a term they picked up from some United Nations literature, as as their goal. So China is constitutionally committed to becoming an ecological civilization. Now, I hope you understand that doesn't mean I would say it represents, it has achieved that. And, you know, I'm not talking about that, but nevertheless, that opened the door so that we have 15 years ago, we had in Claremont the first conference on the topic of ecological civilization for Chinese. And we every year, 50 to 100 Chinese came to Claremont. So our conferences here on the subject have played some role in the theoretical development of that. Now, obviously, I think ecological civilization is a much better goal than global dominance. Yes, yes. 
And the U.S. goal is global dominance, very explicitly. Yes. Of course, some people will ask, well, what does it actually mean in terms of the, the you know, what China has actually done and what commitments? And, and maybe we can talk about that in a moment because, uh, you know, great uh, rhetoric is one thing. Um, the, you know, what, what this actually real looks like. But you mentioned that just this question, uh, this, the importance of process philosophy in your work. Can you maybe just give a little bit of a sense of what process philosophy is and, and maybe how that also informs the way you, you think about climate and, and human relations? Well, uh, I just as I look at everything as a disciple of Jesus, I also look at everything through process eyes. And it's, it's quite interesting that the first process thinker was Gautama Buddha. And if you know, and some people know that language better than they know the modern language. So I'll just say, in, in the Indian culture of the axial age, as, and down to the present time, uh, lots of attention was given to a, the spiritual experience of understanding that our fundamental nature, our fundamental status, is one with the fundamental status of the world, Atman and Brahman. Atman is the self, Brahman is everything. But both are thought of as a substance that is something that underlies the flow of things and remains the same in and of itself. And it, what I finally realized is that the Indo-European languages use a grammar that makes us think the important entity in the sentence is the noun or pronoun. And that same noun or pronoun can function as the subject of many different sentences. But it's a, you understand you understand the noun is referring to the same thing in all those sentences, even though the sentences show different kinds of activity, different moods, you know, all kinds of changes. So it's this, this suggestion in our language that I remain the same while doing many different things. And Buddha said, there is no Atman. And that was a very radical view. And Buddhism has never caught on in India. But when Buddhism came to China, it was talking to people who thought the verb was the heart of the sentence. And they, they, they said, well, sure, of course, you're right. <laughs> so I've had the same experience with China. <laughs> yes. Well, as soon as you have the I as the subject, then you've got the you and the separation is there from the beginning. That's right. And there are no two substances can occupy the same space at the same time. Yes. Relations between substances is always external. Yes, yes. And does that privilege a notion of interdependence? 
there can be no real understanding of interdependence if you think in terms of substances. And you see, one of the worst things that happened to Christianity was that when it adopted the Greek and Latin languages, it adopted the substance thinking. And then the understanding of God is as a substance that has to be external to all other substances. Then it just is totally unlike the Bible. Yeah, yeah. So the metaphysics plays an enormous role. And economics expresses it so clearly that you have individuals who must be treated as individuals. They are fundamentally independent of everything else. Or we act as if they were. It's, uh, but in fact, we depend upon each other for our very existence. Yes. Yeah. Whitehead, Whitehead wants us to focus our attention on our experience. Experience is more real than, than any particular object of experience. Yes, yes. That, that is, it's, we, know, we know there are experiences. That you just cannot doubt. The status of the object, how you could analyze the object and so forth, that's more open for discussion. But every experience for Whitehead is affected by everything that has ever happened. Of course, most of it is trivial. But the most important relationship is the relationship to our own previous experiences. Some thinkers believe that uh, the church, the, the origins of the church, uh, very much linked, and the teachings of Jesus or the teachings in, in the Bible about the, you know, the kingdom of man, as it were, or the kingdom of, you know, uh, the position of, let's say, uh, humans in, in the planetary order, in the, in, in the world order, has a very significant impact on how we have seen ourselves, you know, and, and, and our relationship with, with animals and, and indeed nature. Is that something you, you, you think about? Oh, yes, of course. And I, I think that uh, there are problems in the Bible, though they have been grossly exaggerated. The problem is that Christianity became a set of doctrines, and they became a set of doctrines in languages which are substance languages and which are metaphysically shaped. And that's where the that's where you really get the bad teaching. Yeah. The, the, if you, I mean, in the Bible, it begins with the story of creation. Now, it is pointed out, and in the, the usual translation, uh, it is said that human beings have dominance over others. Well, in some sense, I think, but the, the implication in the context, if you see it carefully, is that yes, we do have a relationship to everything else that they don't have to each other. And that means that we are stewards. And that stewardship is a very important relationship. Yes. But it, it does not justify indifference. The story says God saw that it was good. 
with respect to everything God created. And then the whole started to be very good. So to say that justifies destroying it, I, I think that's a pretty far-fetched. Would, would you uh, single out the, the rise of science in the, in the 16th and 17th century as, as having an important role here as well in this distancing the relationship between man and nature? Oh, the, there's no question. I mean, up, up until modernity, I'm, I'm not saying that we had ideal ways of relating to nature, but there was the sense of a connection. This, 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 we were at the top of a long list, but to be at the top of a long list is still to be part of that list. Yep. And I think that was the dominant way. Dualism is a, is a product, strict dualism, metaphysical dualism. I don't think anyone had thought of that prior to modernity. Yeah. And I think, I think instead of looking to the Bible as the source, we should look to our modern philosophy because uh, our, our economic theory is based directly upon that dualism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Only, only human beings count. I was just uh, hearing recently an example. I understand it was a Japanese whaling company that specialized in the slaughter of one particular kind of whale, and it was clearly driving that whale into extinction. And somebody said, well, wouldn't it be better to kill, kill fewer so that they had a chance to reproduce and you would have a more sustainable income. No, we've done the, we've done the calculation. We make more money if we kill them faster and then invest in something else. Well, that attitude is the absolute opposite of a interest. Yeah. And <laughs> it's what we think we have to be interested in if we have any chance. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's very interesting. And, um, that underlying work you've been doing for decades, and as you say, your um, your role has changed a little bit recently. Not just in terms of the you know your, the awareness of your work in China, but your work yourself. You 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 you've taken to uh, pen and paper um, to to uh, express your ideas to 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 uh, advocate. Can you talk about that? What what why you, you thought that would be helpful and where, where is that going? Because that's, I guess, intimately yeah. related to this Living Earth Movement project. Well, I have, I have thought that Whitehead has done by far the best and most thorough job of creating an alternative to modernity's philosophies. His philosophy is sometimes called philosophy of organism. He thinks the world is ultimately made up of organisms. And if we accept that, and organisms are inherently interrelated to one another, and uh, they at least um, can, be, can become living things in a natural evolutionary development. Life is always something of a puzzle in the mechanistic worldview. 
but but the uh, matter is a product of if we use um, science science scientists talk about mass and energy and they still talk about energy as a secondary matter that mass but they know, I mean, their own evidence is overwhelming that there's lots of energy where there is no mass. E is equal to mc squared is just false. There can be lots of energy when the m is zero. So it's, you know, but we, they still stick to language that fits a metaphysics that has been disproved. And at some point they'll deal with it, but the university is organized to prevent the discussion of topics like this. Um, there are quite a, a wide range of, of new and fertile ways of looking at things that take it out of the you know, traditional uh, neoclassical model, at least. Herman Daly and, 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 and other thinkers that come out of the, the post-growth thinkers, the degrowth thinkers. I'm just wondering, do you see this impacting science and, and other areas, intellectual activities? I mean, you've been working on this for many, many decades. Do you see these ideas being taken up, even, at, as you say, at, at the heart in the academic institutions, there may be this, this you know, uh, narrowness and tightness. But do you see, and is that something that inspires you, the possibility that these ideas are, are, are making their way into other areas? Oh, I, I cannot imagine that science will forever ignore the evidence that it produces. It's just, it's just too ridiculous for me to accept that intelligent people will do it. But that's why I'm so angry about the academic disciplines, which explicitly discourage reflection about any fundamental question. So it, it, you, you get at things that I've been <laughs> upset about for a long time. But uh, we organized a Center for Process Studies and had two conferences a year. And I guess uh, maybe half of the conferences were in the physical sciences, maybe, maybe not that much. But it's always been possible to find individual scientists who will discuss these matters with us. And um, we have, especially in biology, there are quite a number of, have been quite a number of biologists who much prefer Whitehead to the dominant modern, modern view. Uh, among uh, quantum physicists, they just agree with us. David Bohm, David Bohm is the one we work yes. with most closely. And, yeah. I think he was the best philosopher among the quantum physicists. But then uh, we have this another physicist who spends his time talking about what's in empty space. And there yeah. is no empty space. It's just empty of matter. It's just another indication matter or mass is not the fundamental reality. Sound like, that sounds like a very Buddhist idea. <laughs> so yes, I have had hopes, but the problem is that the consequences of fundamental errors at the base of our science, at the base of our technology, at the basis of our economics, 
the basis of our education are so likely to destroy us before we can make make the changes. What do you see the relationship between these these metaphysical ideas and social change in society? You know, we, we talked about capitalism before, the economics of self-interest, uh, the, the financial incentives that people face. And when, when you've been working on these ideas, what was your vision of how the, the these uh, ideas would lead to change? Well, uh, we've already talked about Herman Daly and, and economics based upon the notion of persons in community would be different. And there is an ongoing uh, small group of people who uh, call themselves ecological economists, yes. who, are, who, who take daily very seriously. I mean, exactly the relation. Uh, each one is an, indiv- is an individual who probably thinks in a little different way. But nevertheless, Herman Daly has had some following. Uh, he was uh, an advisor to the Pope in the formation of Laudato Si. So it's not that the, that we don't have any influence, but it's just that the universities have excommunicated Herman Daly. Yes, yes. The, people talk about the church excommunicating. The universities are much worse. And it's not, not a good trend now in America, particularly. What is the Living Earth Movement? What are you trying to do here? What is the Living Earth Movement about, John? I think it's it's difficult to um, to really make the deepest change we need to make without having thought about the deepest questions. But on the other hand, there's such a difference between common sense and what rules the world that there are lots of people who can agree with us that things are related to each other. I mean... And uh, there are lots of people who today have a sense that life is much more fundamental to them. Life is not just another mechanism. So even if they get taught that, the specialists are the hardest people to deal with because they've been so taught that in terms of one metaphysics without ever being told they're being taught a metaphysics that it's just awfully hard to get a conversation started. But for just ordinary, thoughtful citizens, they know that dogs are not just machines. They know that dogs have feelings like we do. Uh, So we can build on common sense. And the term living earth is one that lots of people respond to in a positive way. They don't want a dead planet. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so when we are practically trying to make a difference in how enough people think that it could possibly have an effect upon governments, we don't, we don't lead with the metaphysics. We lead with the implications of the metaphysics. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And, and if, if we look at this question with the, you know, which is a, a key preoccupation, the, the, the relationship between the United States and China, what is your assessment of, 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 of Biden's policy so far? 
an environmental focus, but also clearly the his his uh, animosity uh, towards China or his the, the administration's uh, concerns and anxieties and the way they're escalating uh, this this uh, adversarial relationship. Now, some people say it's still a little bit early to 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 assess Biden, but there, there are some signature or uh, elements, I'd say. I, I'm wondering what you think, John. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not optimistic, but uh, Biden has, on the one hand, was using the language of China is our number one enemy. And on the other hand, was asking China to cooperate on issues of global warming. Well, I, I hoped at one point that it would be possible to reverse the priorities. China is certainly a competitor with the United States. But if you, you don't have to use the language enemy for every competition. So I actually wrote a letter to Biden and to Xi, which which had a lot to do with getting this little organization that, that we mentioned started. And I asked Biden to stop using enemy language if he wanted Xi to cooperate with him. It was, it was almost impossible for Xi to, you know, I mean, he was doing some, they, they've, they've had conversations about the environment all along. So there was something going on, but the more emphatically Biden told Xi, you are my greatest enemy, the harder it was for Xi to be genuinely cooperative. It's hard to trust somebody who insists that, you, that you're enemies. So I said, at least please stop using that language. And um, he did, temporarily. <laughs> Uh, the, the particular issue at the moment was whether China would go to Glasgow. And I asked Xi if Biden made any gesture, however small. Please recognize it may be politically costly to him and reward him by being more cooperative. And she did go to, to Glasgow and they did appoint a committee. So there exists a committee for cooperation on this subject. But of course, Biden has built his international policy on enmity to Russia and China. And is complete, seems to be completely committed to the policy which succeeded in, which achieved its victory in the United States by 9-11. I think the folks in that party put on 9-11. And we rewarded them for their niceness, saying, okay, now you can take over our foreign policy, which they did. And since that, before that time, our policy was somewhat chaotic. We had some actual interest in promoting democracy, not not as much as we pretended, but there was some. And we had some interest 
in the United Nations and a world that we have multipolar structure. And then there was some interest in being top dog and making everybody else do what we wanted. But since that time, only the top dog part has, has survived. So it's, it's very hard to be encouraged by, by these developments. So Biden is a servant of the transnational corporations which want a monopolar world that they can control. And that he, he's not a servant of the American people. Yeah, and, and, and the, the, uh, China has a very different set of economic concerns you know that and and sure. um and and many china watchers and 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 you know environmental uh, analysts point and highlight quite extensive commitments that china are making uh not just domestically you know working uh on on coal um working on non co2 gases um internationally um, and as you say, this this uh, this this uh, interrelationship between the U.S. and China in, in Glasgow, and that you know China is more engaged, and that so these these are important uh, important steps that maybe even a year or two ago that that many people didn't expect. Now you you, you mentioned also the this question um, of. The, the the military or the the, the underlying uh, tensions and this this the money that that's going into the military and the the issues now in terms of oil prices access to to oil the the relationship with Saudi Arabia things like that that have led to much more. Um, uh, oil, new supplies, and uh, new land been given over to oil exploration and so forth. It's quite frightening, really, how how the if you look at what Biden said before and what they're doing now in terms of their attitude to fossil fuels. It sounds like you are broadly optimistic um, or uh, impressed with some of the commitments and the direction of travel uh, of, of the Chinese government when it comes to climate? Well, I, I have to say two things. One, when China committed itself to becoming an ecological civilization, they really made some, and I have continued to make significant efforts to protect the environment of China and to deal with the pollution problems, which were getting very serious and were part of the reason for doing that. So if we simply ask that, ask the question, how has China done in those areas? Quite remarkably well. And they have greatly reduced their use of coal in spite of the fact that they don't have any petroleum. So that has put a huge, I mean, they, they don't have natural gas or petroleum. So when they do have coal, cheap and readily available, but stop you, they haven't stopped using it. But they have reduced the use. They they have done more than any other country to develop energy 
from air and water and, you know, the, the various other sources. Yeah. Yeah. So I think their record is pretty good, but it's certainly, certainly not perfect because they are not giving up on producing goods and services that require energy. Yes. And what about the critic uh, critics and the critique of, of uh, China's human rights record, which is, is uh, highlighted by, certainly by the Americans, consistently? Yeah. Well, uh, I, Marxism has never focused on human rights. It's... it's on, on the list of human rights, especially that capitalists highlight. So I don't. I think that if you're talking about freedom of speech, that's the U.S. is much better place than China. But if you're talking about the right to have enough food and clothing and housing, China has done much better than the United States. I think these are commonly understood as the differences between a socialist and a, and a capitalist country. And uh, I think, uh, well, I think frankly that if the U.S. had not turned China into its enemy, which then puts China on the defensive and they have to worry much more about all kinds of internal things, just fantasize for a minute and imagine that the U.S. treated China as a junior partner and a friend and encouraged its friend to be more relaxed about what people were saying and what got published and so forth. It was not a, the least threatening to China. I, I think China would be doing reasonably well by now. Yeah. But, uh, but when you are... But when you know that the most powerful country in the world has you declared you number one enemy, tendency is to tighten things up rather than to relax. So I, I'm not trying to say human rights are great in China. No. No, no, no. They, they have lifted at least half a billion people out of poverty. And I think for a lot of them, they're more interested in having food to eat than they are in the right to criticize their government. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are some of the levers, John, that the Living Earth Movement um, wants to activate to create change? What are some of the changes you would like to see in the world? Uh, well, I'm trying to put, of course, there are lots of changes that I'd like to see in the world, but, but no one can work, even work on all of them. I personally think that, it, that the time is right for a movement, and there was one you see in the early 70s. There hasn't been one since. And by a movement, I mean that so many just ordinary people and citizens share a concern and sense that they're sharing it with a lot of other people, that uh, if you want to be elected to Congress, you have to address it. When there is a movement, politicians have to pay attention. And our politicians have not been having to pay attention. But I think there are tens of millions of people who might be brought into a kind of 
common movement and that the time is promising for that. So that, that's what, what we're working on. And we call ourselves, I mean, the name we gave ourselves was Living Earth Movement, but of course we are not a movement and we can't lead a movement, but we may be able to do things that, that help to create a sense of, you see, fragmentation is the great enemy of being politically effective. And since the fragmentation that occurred in the early 70s, there has not been a real effort to get all the fragments to agree that they have a common goal and appreciate and support each other. So it's in the interest of, of powerful uh, organizations, powerful individuals, that they're faced with a fragmented uh, opposition. That's right. Oh, it's very much in their interest. If you split it up into lots and lots of very small groups, and that, as you say, that's a, an idea, that's, that's a, a reality that's, that's been around, that's developed and grown and it got exacerbated uh, in, over the decades, you know. So this kind of finding common ground and common humanity and not dividing it into lots of different groups with different agendas, different concerns, and a foundational issue with the, the modern left is, you know, the neglect of, of fundamental questions of economic justice and so forth, which have been, you know, uh, taken up by, by, you know, just this fragmentary approach, which, is, which, is, which works, which is effective. Yes. Oh, I assure you, I'm aware of the power of the, <laughs> of the dominant forces since I have never been able to have an effect beyond very small circles. But I do think the time, it, um, I, my, my public image, insofar as I have any in the United States, or say in the field of theology, in the field of philosophy, in the field of economics, or anywhere in the university or in the church, has been of a marginal individual. And that's very understandable. I'm marginal to everything. But I was marginal in a way that could be easily ignored. And in, at the present time, my sense is that there are more and more people who recognize that ignoring the warnings about what we were doing may not have been wise. Yes, and, and there is a real openness to thinking about alternatives. So we've covered some of these topics. We touched on these earlier, um, but it, you know there was a recent debate or a discussion on on, on social media about you know uh, various. It was a kind of etiology of, of of climate denial and you know analyzing different styles and so forth. But it seems very much that that's we've moved beyond that this question, and it's become much more about. Um, you know, strategies to deal with it and, you know, and, 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 and ways, even the you know, far right will find a way of saying, yes, we have a climate change, but actually what we need to do is get, stop, you know, uh, foreigners coming into our country. We need energy independence. So, forth. so there's, there's something for everybody there. Um, so this question of uh, awareness of, of, of the issues is, is, is one thing I think is, is, is growing. The question then becomes, you know, how do you 
uh, grapple with this. What are a few key uh, recommendations you'd make? Because I, I, I see more and more people are, and, 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 and worryingly, more and more young people are tr- tremendously anxious. And they really are tremendously anxious. And they feel, you know, and, and you know. No, no, the, the, the number who want children is the plan. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's, it's a kind of a, it cuts both ways. They're calling it an emergency, you know, which in one sense it is. Oh, yeah. Is, is also uh, plays into the hand of, you know, we know what happens when governments are in emergency situations. They take extra powers. They, they you know, we lose uh, whatever democratic, uh, you know, uh, means of, of organizing that, you know, uh, we have and, and so forth. So there is a balance there, isn't there? But so what are a few, would you say, uh, key foundational ideas that you'd say to somebody? They say, I, I'm with you. I just had no idea. or I, I get it now. I can see, I'm beginning to see the scope of this thing and it's terrifying. W- w- what can I do? Where should I focus? What should I pay attention to and how should I use my energy? Well, uh, I've mentioned trying to develop this into a movement is yeah. one kind of answer. Another answer is uh, rec- we should recognize that the so much of what we take for granted now is not not going to be available, or we don't know where it will be available and when it will be available. And the most important thing for survival is food, so that producing local food is something. You know, at the present time, I'm told, usually on my plate. Most of the food has traveled a thousand miles on average. Well, that's often not going to be part. We already right now see what's the result of the sanctions that Biden has imposed on Ukraine. I'm not on Ukraine, on Russia, but then the war has had the effect on Ukraine. It means starvation in large sections of Africa. Okay. And things of that kind are going to be happening. Africans should always have been providing their own food. But the whole movement of toward the capitalist movement toward specialization everywhere now means that when these things happen, billions of people are going to starve. Well, I'm not sure we can prevent that, but we can at least push everywhere possible for people to be concerned about what they will eat, how they will produce their own energy, how they will deal with their medical problems. And this means a great deal focus on local transformation in preparation for times when importing something from China is not going to work. We've already had enough, you know, occasions when the ships were just lined up in the harbors with the things that had disappeared from our shelves. But we haven't seen anything yet of the kinds of chaos that were going to be with us within five years. So prepare to feed yourself would be my advice to a lot of people. And engage socially. There is a model and people, you know, rightly say and rightly 
change their their consumption patterns they use less plastic bags or they might drive a little bit less so they might you know go on less holidays and and so forth which is clearly an important part of it you know but your work and and, and your emphasis is also on social engagement community engagement working with others um but, but local communities have to work as communities just individuals Yes. I mean, an individual may have a garden, but if the neighbors are starving, they won't be able to keep it all to themselves. If you've read Octavia Butler, um, you know, as American science fiction writer, a rather dystopian vision. As a final question, if I might, John, it is an emergency. It's 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 a crisis, and yet are we we need to have our imaginations open and and our capabilities to work together to come up with new ideas to to be inspired not to give up hope and there does seem to be a hopelessness around sometimes where we where our ability to imagine possible futures has been foreshadowed overshadowed and and neutered to some extent well uh, that's why uh, most of what I've been doing since China made the decision of adopting the term ecological civilization is to promote thinking about what a, what ecological civilization could be. And uh, there's, some, there's lots of very good literature and uh, the picture of what an ecological civilization would be like, it's, it's a rather beautiful picture. Nice portraits emerging of ecological civilization. So what, what does this look like to you? Yes. Well, it, it looks to me like a, a world in which local communities are fundamental. And local communities are as... Um, self-sufficient as it's practical to be. But of course, it's very important that local communities be in community with other local communities. You see, the, the whole notion of the primary, of the priority of, well, we can even use the word love, the priority of love over enmity, the priority of cooperation over competition, which does not exclude competition, but the kind of competition that can take place in the healthy way in sports, for example, doesn't mean mutual hatred or really trying to destroy the, the other side. It's, but the competition does lead to people becoming more skillful and that's good. Okay, all right. but. So I, it's a world of communities, of communities, of communities, of communities. And uh, that nations can become transformed from being mutual enemies to being communities has been shown us in Europe. The European community, I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to romanticize it, but uh, twice enmity, between France and Germany especially, but other kinds of enmity, drew the whole world into horrible 
well, that's not ha- not going to happen again. And uh, if we would allow it, if we had allowed it, Africa would have developed an African Union. And if I mean, it's mainly the U.S. policy that has prevented this from happening. And U.S. policy has prevented Latin America from becoming a union of that kind. Well, we Americans have enormous guilt to have blocked those things, which which could have already brought us a long way. I mean, we wouldn't have had to make it happen. We just have to let it happen. But we know that an African Union would make it more difficult for us to exploit resources in Africa and the same thing in Latin America and so forth. So my, the notion of having communities of nations is not a fanciful notion, it's a, it's a practical notion. And then finally, if we had the world organized into about eight such communities, comparable, I mean, China and India already are, are, are those communities. And they don't have to be with other countries in order to constitute them. But if we had uh, about eight of them, then they would be finally represented in the community of those eight communities. So there is some governance, but the whole point is there would be no such thing as sovereignty any longer at any level. Sovereignty belongs to a different kind of, of thinking. There would be responsibilities at every level. And there would be some ability to implement responsibilities. Now, yeah. I, I think that's a structure that is not impossible. I don't mean it would ever be perfect. I just mean it's, it's a different fundamental way yes. than uh, just having every nation, uh, the United Nations and uh, hundreds of nations that are supposed to come together. And it, it's it's very difficult for the whole world to be constituted by one community of nations. Yes, yes. But if you think of what is possible, Africa could become a community of nations. Latin America could become that. Southeast Asia probably could. Anyway, so then we have to also develop an ecological economics, and there's been a lot of work done on that. And we definitely know what an ecological agriculture would be like. And uh, there's some work being done on what an ecological education would be like. So there's still plenty of work to do, but it's not that nothing exists that gives us a sense of what an ecological civilization would be. And to invite people to bring their expertise into this. The, a simple shift from the primacy of competition to the primacy of cooperation would make a world habitable for. That's a great vision, John. What's next for the Living Earth Movement? What, what, what have you? Any particular projects? Any particular initiatives? Where are you focusing at the moment? I, I think that our, our real task now is to identify where there are already strong movements, I mean, strong cooperative groups of, of 
NGOs especially. Yes. That might further be brought together and then make their commonality visible. I think that could lead to a sense of a movement. But uh, it's not that we are experts and that we know how to do it and so forth. It's that we just need to fumble along with other people who, I mean, a lot of people who I talked to, don't you think it'd be good if we had could develop a movement among all these? Oh, yeah, that would be great. You know, this, the time is ripe. Time is ripe. Well, but, but we are not the... We cannot make it happen, but we can work with others who also want to make it happen. Wonderful. A wonderful vision. Thank you so much for your time today, John. Thank you. And sharing your vision and energy. And I wish you all the very best with your ongoing work. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, we think you'll enjoy Jeremy Lent's new book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. Jeremy sees the multiple crises we are facing as symptoms of an underlying worldview of disconnection that has passed its expiration date. The Web of Meaning provides an intellectually solid foundation of an alternative worldview of connectedness, weaving together findings from modern science with insights from Buddhism, Taoism and indigenous knowledge. It offers a coherent, integrated worldview that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably on a flourishing planet. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. 